It's just after midnight on June 5th, 1968, and in central Los Angeles, New York Senator Robert Kennedy is holding a party at the Ambassador Hotel. You see, four and a half years after the assassination of his brother, Robert Kennedy was running for President of the United States. June 4th was the day of the California Democratic primary, and as the night grew long, results started to come in that projected the senator winning the state. Following a string of victories across the country, and with delegates from California now behind him, it looked like young Bobby Kennedy was guaranteed to receive the Democratic nomination for president and face off against Richard Nixon in the 1968 election. As the hands of the clock swept past 12.05 a.m. on the morning of June 5th, the victorious Kennedy took to the podium in the hotel's embassy room to address the crowd. Of the hundreds of people packed into the hall, a select few, milling around the edges, carefully watching his movements, knew it would be his final speech. Kennedy could not leave the hotel alive. He addressed the crowd for just over 10 minutes, thanking the many Kennedy campaign volunteers, his wife Ethel, his dog Freckles, and Cesar Chavez, among others. He outlined the promise of his campaign, of an America with racial and social justice, where the poor are uplifted and protected while the ruthless machinations of capital are restrained, where American foreign policy serves the interests of humanity as a whole and not simply as a means to dominate and maintain hegemonic power. And among one of the most important issues for the young people in the room, a future where there was peace in Vietnam. In reference to the Democratic Convention happening two months later, he ended his speech saying, Now it's on to Chicago. Let's win this. Unbeknownst to Kennedy, his campaign and his life would end in the very next room. At 12.15 a.m., Kennedy left the stage and started moving towards his next stop, addressing the press assembled in the nearby Colonial Room. In order to get there, he'd have to walk through the pantry a long, thin, hallway-like room that connected the ballrooms to the hotel kitchen. It was supposed to be cleared of anyone not in the Kennedy party, but as the senator moved through the pantry, at least 77 other people were in the room with him. He moved slowly through the space, stopping to shake hands with a number of hotel employees. At 12.16 a.m., when Kennedy was about halfway through the pantry, a young man wearing a blue jacket and jeans pushed through the crowd and, standing six feet in front of the senator, pulled out an Ivor Johnson twenty-two caliber pistol and started shooting. He got off two shots before Rayford Johnson and Rosie Grier, Kennedy's unofficial bodyguards, tackled the man and pinned him to a nearby table. The former Olympic decathlon champion and the Rams offensive lineman both testified that the 5'5 shooter possessed surprising and seemingly improbable strength, and as they slammed his hand against the table in an attempt to get him to drop the gun, the assassin fired the remaining six shots in his revolver off into the crowd, continuing to robotically pull the trigger even after the gun was empty. Kennedy lay on the floor of the pantry in a pool of blood. His wife, Ethel, who was at the time pregnant with their 11th child, knelt above him. One of the kitchen busboys put a rosary in his hand. Kennedy soon lost consciousness and was sent to L.A.'s Central Receiving Hospital before being transferred to Good Samaritan to undergo brain surgery. At 1.44 a.m. on June 6, a little over a day after the shooting, Robert Kennedy was dead. It seemed like an open and shut case, Dozens of witnesses in the pantry had seen the man in the blue jacket, later identified as Sirhan Bishara Sirhan, a 24-year-old Palestinian-American, pull out his gun and fire on the senator. It seemed that they had gotten their man, and in the show trial that followed, Sirhan was convicted of single-handedly assassinating Robert Kennedy and sentenced to death. But from the very beginning, there were signs that something much larger was at play. And upon examination of the evidence, it becomes clear that not only would it have been impossible for Sirhan to have killed Robert Kennedy, but he may not even have been firing real bullets. Now, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're going to talk plenty about the bullets later. First, I need to do the intro. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 129. RFK must die. 
Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. This episode goes out to Reed Aramondo, Hidden History's newest supporter on Patreon. If you'd like to join them, then there's a link in the show notes. With that, let's get on to the episode. So now that we know the general structure of the official story, let's revisit the events of June 5th, 1968 in some greater detail. Kennedy takes to the stage at 12.05 a.m., and after his speech, he's supposed to go downstairs to address the overflow crowd that had gathered in the ambassador room. He would exit the stage to the right, walking behind the third member of his unofficial security team, former FBI agent Bill Barry, who would walk ahead of Kennedy on the journey downstairs. Midway through his speech, Kennedy's campaign manager, Fred Dutton, changed the plans. Like he had done after previous primary victories, Kennedy would instead go give statements to the press. The reporters were assembled in the nearby colonial room, and no matter which side of the stage Kennedy exited, in order to get there, he would have to pass through the pantry. After his speech ended, he began to exit stage right in accordance with the plan, but was instead called off to exit through the back of the stage. Bill Barry struggled through the crowd to get back to Kennedy, who would now be entering the pantry completely vulnerable from the front. As Kennedy exits the embassy room and enters the small anteroom that led to the pantry, someone new takes a hold of Kennedy's right elbow and begins to lead him through the crowd. A security guard dressed in a gray uniform who normally worked in a top-secret Lockheed facility and was, on June 5th, starting his first night as a part-time guard for Ace Security, who contracted to the hotel, but we'll talk about him in a bit. This security guard, standing immediately behind and to the right of Kennedy, leads him through a pair of double doors and into the pantry. Progress is slow because Kennedy keeps breaking away to shake hands. Eventually, he makes it about halfway through the room, in between a long pair of kitchen steam tables and a sizable ice machine, which made the tight passage even tighter. At the end of the room, Sirhan was standing on a kitchen tray rack with someone else who we'll talk about later, a young brunette woman wearing a white dress with dark, quarter-sized polka dots. Witnesses from the pantry, including hotel waiter Vince DiPiero, who shook Kennedy's hand just before the shooting, say that it looked like they were together. She seemed to be saying something to him and smiling. After she finished saying whatever she did, Sirhan stepped down off the tray rack and started to work his way through the crowd. Witnesses place Sirhan between three and six feet in front of Kennedy when he goes for his gun, and say that as he starts firing, he has a big smile on his face. He gets off two shots and is tackled by Rafer Johnson and pinned to the adjacent steam table. The flurry of shots continued in what witnesses described sounding like firecrackers. When the shooting started, Kennedy threw up his hands in front of his face, clearly perceiving that the threat was directly in front of him. Then he twisted around to his left, staggered, and fell backwards on the floor of the pantry. As Rafer Johnson slammed his hand against the table, and later as the crowd began to pummel Sirhan, a number of witnesses were disturbed by how calm and serene he looked, like he was not aware of what was happening. When the shooting stopped and Sirhan had been wrestled to the ground, with lineman Rosie Grier apparently sitting on top of him, Kennedy had been shot four times. Twice under his right arm, one bullet lodged in his spine and one entered and exited through his chest, one bullet passed without harm through the hem of his jacket's right shoulder, and one bullet entered his brain, approximately two inches behind his right ear. Outside of Kennedy, there were five other victims. Paul Schrader, a UAW representative and Kennedy ally, was shot in the forehead. William Weissel, who was shot in the stomach. Ira Goldstein, who was shot in the hip. Erwin Stroll, who was shot in the shin. And Elizabeth Evans, who was shot in the top of the head. There were no fatalities except for Kennedy. Now, let's pause here, because even now, just taking a look at events on a little bit of a more detailed level, you might have noticed several things that stuck out as a little suspect. And if you were just counting, then you might know where we're going next. The first piece of evidence that we're going to look at that completely refutes a lone gunman explanation is a pretty fundamental one. The number of bullets. Now, Sirhan's gun was an Ivor Johnson 22 caliber, a small gun that looks like a starting pistol. It has a capacity of eight rounds. 
Kennedy was shot four times, plus one bullet each for Schrader, Evans, Stroll, Weissel, and Goldstein already brings our total to nine, one more than Sirhan's gun could hold. Now, you may be thinking, wow, that was almost improbably easy. If it were that obvious, then why did nobody pursue this blatant evidence of multiple gunmen at the time? And that is a two-pronged answer, both of which we'll get to later. In short, though, these lines of investigation were pursued in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, only for other suspect leads to be shut down by the LAPD, evidence of conspiracy to evaporate from FBI reports, and a significant amount of evidence challenging the official narrative being destroyed one example of which we're going to talk about in just a sec. The LAPD, which led the investigation into the assassination, forced any witnesses who saw evidence of conspiracy into grueling interrogation sessions that would not end before they recanted their story. Prominent LAPD criminologist Dwayne Wolfer, who was accused of misrepresenting and manipulating evidence to a perjurous degree in a prior case, came up with a number of complex explanations for the found bullets, entrance and exit wounds, and bullet holes that always magically seemed to bring the number of shots back down to eight. For example, Wolfer claimed that the bullet that passed through the hem of Kennedy's jacket was the same one that hit Paul Schrader in the forehead. This, of course, is impossible. The jacket bullet was fired upward at a 35-degree angle, passing through the right shoulder from back to front. Schrader was not only standing behind Kennedy, but he was standing on his left. The jacket bullet could only be the Schrader bullet if it turned 180 degrees in midair. We'll knock down the rest of these ridiculous theories as they come up later. But anyway, this tangent was meant to convey that Upon scrutiny of the aftermath of the assassination, which rest assured will come in more detail later, it becomes apparent that Kennedy was not killed by a crazed lone gunman, he was not killed by a group of sloppy, impassioned amateurs, but rather by a powerful and well-organized group that has the capabilities of planning and executing a complex assassination, and exerting power to control the cover-up of the crime. You probably have your suspicions of who in American history could possibly do such a thing, but that too is coming later. Let's get back to the bullets. So four for Kennedy and five for the others make nine, but after the shooting, the LAPD officers investigating the crime scene noticed four bullet holes in the frame of the double doors Kennedy walked through to enter the pantry, two halfway up the left post and two halfway up the center post. LAPD officers circled and annotated these as bullet holes, and Dwayne Wolfer was photographed pointing at them. He would later claim that these new holes were actually made by collisions with the pantry's kitchen carts, a patently ridiculous claim. The FBI's initial report on the crime scene mentions these bullet holes in the doorframe, but after the first report, they disappear from future documentation almost as if those handling the investigation realized the holes in the doorframe constituted a few too many bullets. In the early hours of June 5th, a kitchen employee chased away a man in a tuxedo prying bullets out of the doorframe with a knife. Later on, when the police found Sirhan's car, they also found two bullets in the passenger seat. Upon testing, they found them to be covered in tiny pieces of wood. Perhaps realizing that the door frames presented a problem, all of the wood molding at that end of the pantry was removed and taken into LAPD possession. Soon after, obviously before the trial, the police burned the door frames, which they claimed to do because the doors presented, quote, no evidentiary value, which, I mean, it certainly seemed like those doors had evidentiary value to the officers at the scene, and I would say things without evidentiary value usually do not get mentioned in FBI reports, but I digress. Destroying the door frames solved a significant problem, but there were still a few large hurdles left, one of which were the holes in the ceiling. Officially, there were three holes in the pantry's drop ceiling tiles. Contradicting this, in the initial LAPD investigation of the crime scene, Dwayne Wolfer commented that there were an, quote, unbelievable amount of damn holes in the ceiling. Officially, there were three holes in the ceiling. But later photographs of the crime scene show that the LAPD removed five full ceiling tiles. The evidence seems to suggest that Wolfer's original impression that there were certainly more than three holes is the accurate one. 
Initially, he explained this preponderance of holes as being the result of a special kind of fragmenting ammunition known as minimag. Remember that, it's going to come up later. Suffice it to say, for reasons we will discuss, Sirhan was not firing minimag ammunition. With the tiles safely in the custody of the LAPD, the number of holes could drop back down to three. Wolfer claimed that one was from Kennedy's chest bullet, which was lost in the ceiling, and the other two were due to a bullet from Sirhan's gun that entered the ceiling, ricocheted off something, and then exited the ceiling once more, ending up in the top of Elizabeth Evans' head. Now, I don't need to tell you that that is a pretty remote possibility, especially when the trajectory of the acknowledged bullet holes in the ceiling are inconsistent with anything that could have ended up in Elizabeth Evans' scalp. So, to recap, four bullets in Kennedy, plus five in the others, plus four in the door frames, that's 13 shots. Even if we completely ignore the ceiling tiles, if the unbelievable amount of holes represented only a single new bullet to the shot total, that would make 14, almost double the capacity of Sirhan's gun. Remember that nine bullets is all we need to establish the presence of a second shooter. Now, at this point, you may be asking yourself the question, if there were multiple shooters, who were the people that Sirhan shot and were any of them Robert Kennedy? To answer that question, first we need to take a look at Kennedy's autopsy. So, the 1963 autopsy of President John F. Kennedy was infamously botched and sloppily documented. The body had been taken from the hospital in Dallas back to Washington, where it had been subject to examinations at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. Determined to avoid a similar incident, the LAPD wanted to maintain access to the body and perhaps wanted to produce an autopsy that would better hold up to future scrutiny. To that end, Thomas Noguchi, the Los Angeles County coroner, would perform the autopsy. Noguchi was considered meticulous, and thanks to his performing the autopsies of multiple celebrities, had earned the nickname Coroner to the Stars. After examining the body, Noguchi noticed something interesting. All of the shots that had hit Bobby Kennedy had entered from the back. They had been fired by someone behind him. What's more, both the fatal shot behind the right ear and the two shots fired under his right arm showed evidence of what are known as powder tattoos. If a gun is fired at close enough range, the heat from the exploding powder can leave a kind of burn, black stippling, on a target. In order to determine the range at which the fatal shot was fired, Noguchi conducted an experiment on pig's ears, firing an Ivor Johnson 22 at various ranges until he could recreate the powder burns found on Kennedy. Do you know the range at which he was able to produce the same kind of burns? Half an inch. The fatal shot was fired at point-blank range. The barrel of the gun had practically been touching him. In order to give himself some wiggle room, Noguchi said that the absolute maximum distance that the shot could have been fired was three inches. That presented a problem. Every single witness had put Sirhan directly in front of Kennedy, and no witnesses put his gun closer than three feet. What's more, to reiterate, the autopsy showed that the shots that hit Kennedy under his arm were fired at an approximately 35-degree upward trajectory, passing back to front, necessitating that at least one other shooter was standing inches behind and to the right of Kennedy as he passed through the pantry. You may remember someone who fits that positioning, a newly minted security guard leading Kennedy through the crowd by the right elbow, but we're still not there yet. Going back to the autopsy, during the trial, the LAPD pressured Noguchi to change his minimum distance from three inches to three feet, bringing the results within the range of Sirhan's gun. Noguchi refused to perjure himself, and as a result, came under great scrutiny by the LAPD. Even though he had only been named county coroner in 1967, he resigned in 1968, shortly after the Kennedy autopsy. He would later claim that his resignation was forced. So, we've got more bullets than Sirhan's gun could hold, and the killing shot coming from behind and to the right of Kennedy. These two facts, in combination, show that we have proof that there were multiple shooters in the room, and that Sirhan did not fire the shot that killed Kennedy. But, if none of Sirhan's shots connected with Kennedy, then where did they go? 
Remember, Sirhan walks up to a few feet in front of Kennedy, points his gun at his chest, and gets off two unobstructed shots before he's tackled to the steam table. Now, potentially, the wounds to the five others could be explained by Sirhan firing his gun wildly as Rafer Johnson tried to beat it out of his hand. I find it hard to believe that a gun attempted to be wrenched away in such a manner could be fired in a way where each of the six remaining shots connected with someone, but I digress. Even if that were the case, then what happened to those two clear shots that Sirhan took at Kennedy? Why were there no bullets passing through Kennedy's chest front to back? Maybe one of those shots missed and hit Paul Schrader in the forehead, but wait, that couldn't be. Seven bullets were recovered from the victims, with the supposed eighth, Kennedy's chest bullet, being lost in the ceiling. That accounts for every chamber in Sirhan's gun, and includes both the Shreda bullet and the first two shots fired as separate entities. When accounting for the real location of these first two shots, it seems that they just… disappear. Now, that doesn't make very much sense, does it? Bullets don't just disappear mid-air. It wouldn't make sense if Sirhan was firing live ammunition. But if he were firing blanks, suddenly things start to line up. But, you might be saying, Ellis, that sounds preposterous. What evidence is there to show that Sirhan was not firing real bullets? Well, I'm glad you asked. Carl Euchre was a maitre d' at the Ambassador Hotel and was leading Kennedy through the pantry by his right wrist. When the shooting started, he was only a few feet away from Sirhan. Euchre said that he heard a small popping sound, like a balloon or a cap gun, and then he saw the bright muzzle flash of Sirhan's gun, tongues of flame licking out of the barrel. He also described what looked like clouds of soot, little pieces of black particulate matter flying through the air from Sirhan's gun. Vince de Piero, the hotel waiter, noticed the bright muzzle flash. Rafer Johnson said in an interview with the LAPD, I thought it was a balloon, the first shot, because I didn't see anything. I looked, and then the second shot, I saw smoke, and I saw like something from a, like a, the residue from a bullet or cap, looked like a cap gun throwing off residue. That testimony, coming from three independent witnesses, all in close proximity to the shooting, Vince DiPiero was so close that when Kennedy was shot, his glasses got covered in blood. All of this testimony would not make sense if Sirhan was using live ammunition. Real bullets do not produce such a pronounced muzzle flash in a gun just as they do not produce that kind of residue. If, on the other hand, Sirhan was firing blanks or cap bullets, then such testimony would make sense. These kinds of faux bullets contain paper wadding, which is ignited upon firing, leading to a small spurt of flame from the barrel and, as the wadding burns up, small ash particles that are propelled through the air. This would also explain the improbability that, while flailing his arm wildly, Sirhan somehow connected five more shots on members of the crowd. The answer is simple. He was not the one shooting. For reasons that we'll explore in a bit, someone else must have been firing from Sirhan's position. Now, I understand that, for some of you, the addition of this element of a third shooter firing from Sirhan's position into the crowd around Kennedy may seem like a bridge too far. But this really is what the evidence and testimony suggests, which we're going to get into later when we talk about the cast of characters who were seen around the hotel to be involved in the assassination. For now, though, there's one piece of evidence we can talk about that actually alludes to the existence of a fourth shooter. And for that, we need to go back to the mini-mag, the fragmenting ammunition Dwayne Wolfer claimed was responsible for the holes in the ceiling. Now, three bullets entered Kennedy, but only one bullet fragmented. Any guesses on which one it was? That's right, the one that went in his brain. The type of bullet that would have caused fragments in such a situation would have to be engineered to do so, and so if either of the other two shots had been with the same kind of ammunition, they would have fragmented inside of Kennedy as well, instead of passing clean through his chest and becoming lodged whole in his spine. So, either the man who shot Kennedy twice under the right arm very carefully counted out his ammunition when loading his gun, determined which bullet would be the kill shot, and loaded that chamber with a mini-mag round, or there was another shooter. The distance between the two arm positions needed to make both shots also presents problems for the idea that there was only one shooter behind Kennedy. 
Indeed, there is, of course, witness testimony that seems to confirm the existence of this fourth shooter. Richard Lubick, a CBS employee who was standing an arm's length behind Kennedy, said that he saw a hand reach out from the throng of people behind the senator and point a gun at his head. Frank Burns, a personal advisor to California Assemblyman Jesse Big Daddy Unruh, corroborates this account. He was standing behind Kennedy when the shooting started and saw an arm with a gun on his right side pointing at Kennedy's head. So, now that we've established the basis of there being multiple gunmen in the pantry that night, let's talk about some of the individuals at play here. Of course, we only know the real identities of a few of these people, and there are innumerable theories about the identities of the rest. The first one we should talk about is one of the guys we know for sure. You know him, you love him. I've been dropping hints about him all episode. It's everybody's favorite ace security guard, Fane Eugene Caesar. Fane Caesar, known to his friends as Gene, was normally employed in Lockheed Aerospace's highly classified Skunk Works facility, where his position was listed as janitor. The Skunk Works, in case you didn't know, is off-limits to everyone, even janitors, who did not have a security clearance, and was the facility where the covert agencies collaborated with Lockheed to design the top-secret U-2 spy plane. On a side note, the U-2 program also has connections to Lee Harvey Oswald, but that's a story for another time. Suffice it to say, anyone who had access to the Skunk Works was not just another average Joe. Indeed, in the 1970s, Fane Caesar's name appeared in an internal agency database of CIA assets. Caesar held extreme far-right views, having previously canvassed for the 1968 segregationist presidential candidate George Wallace, and believed that the Kennedy family had destroyed the country, saying that they had, quote, given it away to the Reds. Not only was he in the perfect position to fire the three non-fatal shots at Kennedy, but multiple witnesses in the pantry reported seeing him with his gun drawn, pointing towards the senator immediately after the shooting started. Shortly after the assassination, Caesar sold his gun, a twenty-two caliber pistol, to a co-worker and told him to be careful with it as it had been used in a crime. He told the police, of course, that he had sold the gun in question months before the Kennedy assassination. Every time he recounted his story, the details changed. Sometimes Kennedy twisted around and grabbed his tie as he fell to the floor. Sometimes Kennedy stumbled back and fell on top of him. Sometimes he grabbed Kennedy by the elbow and lowered him to the floor. Needless to say, it seems that there is something afoot with Thane Caesar, and out of all the people in the pantry that night, he is by far and above the most likely candidate to have shot Kennedy under his right arm. But, as we've established, there was more than one shooter, there were more than two shooters. So, who were the people involved outside of Sirhan and Caesar? To start answering that, we need to go back to another person I said we'd get to later, the mysterious woman in the polka dot dress, seen whispering and smiling at Sirhan seconds before the shooting. Now, this is someone, spoilers, whose real identity remains a mystery. But 25 people in the hotel that night testified to seeing her, and through their accounts we can piece together some of what her role was in the plan. Vince DiPiero and a number of other witnesses in the pantry said that Sirhan and the girl looked like they were together. Other members of the kitchen staff placed the two in the hotel kitchen drinking coffee together shortly before the shooting. Later on, it would become apparent that drinking this coffee was the last event in the night that Sirhan remembered. When he regained his memory, he was in the cell of a Los Angeles police station. But we're not quite there yet. Once the bullets start flying and Kennedy falls to the ground, she flees through the west end of the pantry and runs down the southwestern fire escape. As she passes through the exit, she turns to shout something at another member of the team. Throughout that night, a large man in a maroon suit was seen standing near the exit to the southwest fire escape, speaking and listening to what looked like a small transistor radio. The wives of two CBS executives told police that at one point, the man looked at them and said, You've seen me here all night. It's true that they had, and it sounds an awful lot like trying to establish an alibi. So, what did the girl in the polka dot dress gleefully shout to the man in the maroon suit? We shot him. 
Sandra Serrano, a 20-year-old Kennedy volunteer, was sitting on the fire escape when the girl in the polka dot dress came running down with someone else, described as a 5'10 Hispanic man in a gold sweater. Serrano asked who they had shot, to which the girl in the polka dot dress replied, we shot Kennedy. Serrano, disturbed at this news, went into the hotel to ask about Kennedy, and multiple people told her that nothing was wrong. In the immediate aftermath of the shooting, the rest of the hotel was not aware. She went to call her parents, and while she was on the phone, word of Kennedy's shooting began to spread throughout the building. This timing was corroborated by the accounts of an elderly couple who told the LAPD they saw the two run out yelling, we shot him, we shot him, and of Catherine Keir, who was at the hotel for the Kennedy reception. She was one of the multiple witnesses who described seeing Sirhan with the man in the gold sweater, and she was standing on the southwestern fire escape one floor above Sandra Serrano when the girl in the polka dot dress and the man in the gold sweater came back through. Looking at the ways that these eyewitness accounts align, it becomes clear that the girl in the polka dot dress served the role of Sirhan's handler. That will become more obvious when we discuss Sirhan's mental state during and memories of the shooting. But let's get back to the topic at hand. All lines of inquiry into the girl in the polka dot dress were shut down by the LAPD. Witnesses who recounted seeing the girl were brought into what were essentially interrogation sessions run by CIA-connected LAPD officer Enrique Hank Hernandez, in which he would hook witnesses up to polygraph machines and pretty much psychologically torture them until they changed their story. Now, not to mention that polygraphs or lie detectors are completely unscientific hocus that only really measures someone's nervousness or stress, which I imagine is pretty easy to manipulate if you strap them to a chair and interrogate them alone in a cell for hours, day after day. Sandra Serrano, like many of the other witnesses to the girl in the polka dot dress, was subject to these intense extended interrogations. In the two weeks after the shooting, Hernandez interrogated her many times in sessions that would last for hours. Serrano would later describe it as constant harassment. In their sessions, Hernandez would repeatedly tell Serrano to stop lying about what she saw, about how cruel she was being to Ethel Kennedy, at one point saying, quote, I think you owe it to the late Senator Kennedy to come forth, be a woman about this. If he and you don't know, and I don't know, whether he's a witness right now in this room watching what we're doing in here. Don't shame his death by keeping this up. I have compassion for you. What sickly poisonous words. Hernandez repeatedly told Serrano that she did not see what she saw, twisting and intentionally misrepresenting her words. Serrano refused to change her story through two weeks of constant interrogation, but ultimately relented after a multiple hour-long session where Hernandez nailed polka dot dresses to the walls. Eventually, on June 20th, the police forced Serrano to make a statement saying that, quote, the whole thing was a lie. Now that the most important witness had recanted her story, the LAPD canceled the all-points bulletin alert searching for the girl in the polka dot dress. What role did the man in the gold sweater play? We're not sure. There's evidence to suggest that there were multiple assassination teams, and that even if Kennedy had gone downstairs to address the overflow crowd, they would have been prepared. But that's outside the scope of this already very long episode. Perhaps the man in the gold sweater was a member of another assassination team. Perhaps he served some kind of support role as a handler, or perhaps something completely different. His true role is one of the many things we have to be content with not knowing. So we are almost all the way through our core assassination crew. And if you are counting shooters, then you know there are two we still haven't talked about. The mini-mag shooter who reached out from the crowd behind Kennedy and fired the fatal shot, and the man who fired regular 22 rounds into the crowd around Kennedy from behind Sirhan's position. So first let's talk about the guy who fired the fatal bullet, because this is the shooter we unfortunately know the least about. Nobody saw his face, and the two witnesses who did see him only saw his hand sticking out of the crowd. 
It's likely that, after pulling the trigger, the shooter escaped back through the double doors Kennedy had just entered and into the embassy room. From here, he successfully exited the hotel. It's likely that he was allowed to do so thanks to a diversion created by another suspected member of the conspiracy, the far-right political nut Michael Wayne, who bolted from the pantry with a rolled-up poster that looked like a concealed gun, causing witnesses from the pantry to chase after him and tackle Wayne to the ground. He would later make the ridiculous claim that he was running because he wanted to get to a phone, even though he passed multiple working phones on his run through the hotel. When they caught him, Michael Wayne was unarmed. All he had was a poster and a tie pin, which, just hours before, had been given to him by Robert Kennedy. In his wallet was the business card of Keith Duane Gilbert, a self-professed disciple of Adolf Hitler, who was a member of a far-right terrorist group, which received CIA funding, called the Minutemen. In 1965, Gilbert was arrested for stealing 1,400 pounds of dynamite. He had planned to blow up Hollywood's Palladium Theater during a dinner hosted by Los Angeles Jewish leaders to honor Martin Luther King. What's more, Gilbert had Wayne's card as well. So now there is one major player on the team we have yet to discuss, and that is the man who was firing real bullets from Sirhan's position. Now first, we're going to talk about the evidence and witness accounts that place another shooter in this location, and then we're going to talk about the other big reason why such a shooter would be necessary. Ira Goldstein, one of the shooting victims, saw a tall man with dirty blonde hair wearing a blue sport jacket kneeling on top of the steam table at the end of the pantry. Firefighter Harold Burba and another pantry witness, George Green, both saw this man in the blue jacket as well. After the shooting started, Nina Rhodes Hughes, another pantry witness who also saw the man in the blue jacket, saw him cover his face and swing down from the steam table and into the crowd. Because of the similarity in their outfits, Rhodes Hughes initially thought that this man and Sirhan were the same person. Evan Freed, who was a freelance photographer, saw a tall man with dirty blonde hair and a blue sport jacket fleeing the pantry from the eastern entrance. Only a minute or two later, Gilman Kraft and Ernesto Ruiz, two more hotel witnesses, saw a tall man with dirty blonde hair, a blue turtleneck, and a blue sport coat bolting through the lobby with a woman. So, we have a chain of witnesses that describe someone kneeling on top of the steam tables at the end of the pantry, after the shooting begins, covering his face and disappearing into the crowd before running downstairs and escaping through the lobby. What's the significance of that? Well, the bullet wounds received by the other victims, Elizabeth Evans in the top of the scalp, Erwin Stroll in the shin, these bullets entered in trajectories consistent with being fired from an elevated position. In the Evans bullet, the angle of entry near the top of her hairline caused the bullet to flatten against the top of her skull. She would later ask for and receive it as a souvenir. So now for our final shooter, we have witnesses placing a man dressed in a blue on top of the steam tables, gaining a height advantage over everyone in the pantry, and slipping away during the commotion. We then have descriptions of a very similar-sounding man bolting through the hotel lobby in the process vaulting over a couch with an unknown team member. This, combined with the ballistic evidence that suggests an elevated firing position, means I think we've got our final shooter. But the question remains, why would that final shooter be necessary? Why not have Sirhan use real bullets and make the plan infinitely easier? Well. The short answer is, you don't want your mind-controlled assassin using real bullets. He might hit one of your own guys by mistake. A fourth shooter, who knew his co-conspirators, and consequently who not to aim at, was needed to make it look like Sirhan was using live rounds. So, here it is, the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time to talk about the mind control. Approximately 5% of the population can be hypnotized to a degree where they will commit actions that they would not normally do while lucid. By all discernible metrics, Sirhan falls within this 5%. Recall his seemingly inhuman strength as described by Rafer Johnson and Rosie Grier, his robotic pulling of the trigger after the gun was empty, his big smile when he started shooting. 
As he was being pummeled by the crowd, witnesses described the look in his eyes as serene. All of these were symptoms of someone in a deep hypnotic trance. This hypothesis is corroborated by the fact that Sirhan was seemingly under the influence of post-hypnotic suggestion while in initial police custody. He could not remember his name, the events of that night, or anything about himself until after he was arraigned in front of a judge. It's possible that whoever programmed Sirhan included this condition intentionally as a means to slow immediate investigation. Even when his memory did start to come back, some things stayed hidden. To this day, 55 years later, Sirhan maintains that the last memory he has of that night is drinking coffee with the girl in the polka dot dress. After that, Sirhan says that he was mentally transported to a gun range and hallucinated that he was shooting at a target. This phenomenon came to be known as range mode, and in subsequent interviews with Sirhan, in the initial trial and afterwards, hypnotists learned that they could trigger this deep trance in Sirhan by using a combination of imagery and trigger words. Upon entering range mode, Sirhan would pick up a gun, or whatever he was told was a gun, and begin robotically shooting it at an imaginary target. Other evidence of Sirhan's hypnosis comes from items that were illegally seized and used at his trial, a pair of school notebooks that had been taken without a warrant from his childhood home. On one page, he had written over and over and over again in an erratic hand the phrase, RFK must die. When asked if he had written it, Sirhan said that yes, it looked like a derivation of his handwriting, but he had absolutely no recollection of writing it. In his trial, the explanation would be that Sirhan, a Palestinian-American, had read about Kennedy's decision to send bombers to Israel and, as a result, wrote that repeating passage and began plotting to kill the senator. This, of course, belies the fact that the entry in Sirhan's journal was written three days before the earliest newspaper or magazine mention of Kennedy offering bombers to Israel. Indeed, at the time, Kennedy had not yet even made the announcement. So how could that have been the rationale behind the entry? Sirhan was described by all who knew him as meek, mild-mannered, and exceedingly polite. These journal entries and their timings serve more to bolster the hypnosis explanation than dismiss it. Now, the question becomes, if Sirhan was hypnotized, how far in advance of the assassination did his programming begin? It seems a possible answer is that his programming began almost two years prior, in 1966, before Robert Kennedy even announced his candidacy. If this was the case, then perhaps there were other plans in store for Sirhan. In 1966, when he was working as an exercise boy at a horse farm in Corona, California, he suffered a bad accident when he was thrown from a horse. After the accident, Sirhan disappeared for two weeks, and even though his physical wounds were relatively minor, he continued to regularly go to the hospital for months afterwards. It was at this time that his friends and family noticed a significant change in his mood. He was now extremely quick to anger and complained of constant headaches. He isolated himself and began to obsess over innocuous things. Even though he no longer worked at the horse farm and lived in Pasadena, Sirhan continued to make trips up to Corona, where he was documented as using the Corona Police Department gun range. Corona also just happens to be home to the highly secretive Naval Surface Warfare Center, which is highly involved in intelligence activities and is linked strongly to the CIA. Ultimately, though, this too is something that we will never know for sure. The vast majority of the documentation of CIA mind control programs has been destroyed. We do know, though, that as early as 1955, 13 full years before the Robert Kennedy assassination, one, the CIA had discovered how to hypnotize people in a way that could cause them to do things not in their nature, and two, that they considered their mind control assassin concept ready for testing in the field. And that's in 1955. So, looking at this sum of evidence, this huge amount of witness testimony that we've poured over, the complex conspiracy to assassinate Robert Kennedy finally comes into focus. 
Sirhan, while in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel, was activated by his handler, the girl in the polka dot dress. Perhaps the coffee was drugged, perhaps it was something she said, perhaps it was the pattern of her dress, perhaps something else. Whichever way, Sirhan entered a trance. As Bobby Kennedy moves through the pantry, Sirhan pushes through the crowd and enters range mode, firing a gun loaded with blanks at Kennedy from the front, drawing attention to him so that the real killers can land their shot and escape sight unseen. To hide the fact that Sirhan was not using real bullets, the man in the blue jacket fires non-fragmenting 22 rounds into the crowd surrounding Kennedy and slips away through the lobby. Everyone escapes except for Sirhan, who, in a trial that could only be described as farcical, is sentenced to death. Struggling to come up with a rationale for the murder he seemingly committed but did not remember, and balking at his lawyer's suggestion that he plead insanity, Sirhan decided to latch on to the Israeli bomber's angle, and in a last-ditch effort to have some semblance of control over his trial, he claimed that he had indeed killed Kennedy, and had done so with, quote, 20 years of malice aforethought. For this, he asked the judge to be sentenced to death. The judge rejected Sirhan's plea, never mind the fact that if Sirhan had truly plotted Kennedy's demise for 20 years, he would have started at four years old. Sirhan's defense consistently refused to challenge evidence, question witnesses, or perform even the most basic lines of inquiry. His lawyer, Grant Cooper, said publicly that he believed Sirhan was guilty and that he was really only trying to prevent him from getting the death penalty. Cooper himself had felony charges hanging over his head, as he had stolen grand jury transcripts in another case. Coincidentally, after Sirhan's trial was wrapped up with a guilty conviction and a death sentence, Cooper's felony disappeared, and he only received a $1,000 fine. In the months preceding, during, and after the trial, the LAPD burned over 2,400 crime scene photos in the medical incinerator of Central Receiving Hospital. Eventually, due to the abolition of the death penalty in California, Sirhan's death sentence was commuted to life in prison. Without this, the only known person whose subconscious contained some knowledge of the plot would have been silenced forever. Despite the mountain of evidence, Sirhan has been denied every time he has been up for parole and is still in prison to this day. In the 1970s, an opportunity arose to retest the ballistics on Sirhan's gun, to fire test bullets from the weapon and see if their markings matched any recovered from the crime scene. It was then discovered that, coincidentally, the LAPD had stored Sirhan's gun in an improper manner, leading to a significant lead buildup on the inside of the barrel, which would prevent accurate ballistic measurements from ever being taken again. In 1980, Allard Lowenstein, a congressional representative from Long Island, New York, got extremely close to getting a commitment from an incumbent Jimmy Carter to reopen the RFK assassination if he were re-elected. On March 14, 1980, Lowenstein's old protege, Dennis Sweeney, walked into his office and shot him to death. He claimed, among other crazy things, that the CIA was broadcasting voices inside of his head. After killing Lowenstein, Sweeney calmly sat down in his office and waited for the police. The assassination of Robert Kennedy was a crime that happened over half a century ago. The Ambassador Hotel was knocked down in 2006. Any, for example, written evidence that could have documented beyond the shadow of a doubt the existence of the conspiracy to assassinate Robert Kennedy has long since been destroyed. Because we will never get that smoking gun, that irrefutable proof, that will cause some to say that it is wholly impossible that such a conspiracy could have existed. Ironically, they tend to call themselves skeptics. But what are they skeptical about? The official story, which is rife with magical reasoning, holes the size of city blocks and pure illogic? Or are they skeptical of any evidence, no matter how exculpatory, that challenges the given explanation? We will never get a smoking gun. Almost everybody we suspect was involved is by now dead. Sirhan is still in prison and remembers nothing. But even though that perfect piece of evidence does not exist, at least anymore, we can still look at what we do know, 
what witnesses described, how pieces of evidence that, on their own, the skeptic would dismiss as mere coincidence, actually align in ways that can grant us deep insight into events such as this. In general, the people will have a difficult time finding out about these types of facts because, obviously, there are significant powers at work that have a vested interest in knowledge about all kinds of covert operations, especially assassinations, a secret. Most all the time, anything that we do know is but a tiny fraction of the whole. The extent of a plan's reach and complexity and the failures that may have preceded it, the size and diversity of an agency's operations, the successes and failures of its mind control program. There is such a great proportion of things that we will never know. Thankfully, there are some things that we do, and we need to use that evidence to fill in the rest of the picture. Is there 100% undeniable proof documenting a conspiracy to assassinate Robert Kennedy? No. But does really every single piece of physical evidence and witness testimony, not to mention the autopsy, point in the direction of there being a conspiracy to assassinate Robert Kennedy? Yes. I think to look at all of the evidence that's there and still say that Sirhan was a deranged gunman who acted alone and put himself into a trance by looking at the lights sparkling in the hotel's mirrors, I think that's just completely beyond reason and, if we're being honest, a little childish. You know, there are certain aspects that you may or may not believe. Maybe you don't think that Sirhan was firing blanks. I think that witness testimony suggests that he was. Maybe you don't think that he was programmed to be in a hypnotic trance. Again, I do think that testimony and evidence points to that being the case, but the point is, even if there are details that you may quibble with in some respect, the fundamental fact remains that it was mathematically and physically impossible for Sirhan Sirhan to be Kennedy's lone killer. So this was a long episode because I felt like there was a lot of detail that I really needed to include to give you a look into the real history of this assassination. But even with the length that we're at right now, there was just a huge amount of things that I could not include in the scope of this episode. For example, after hearing that Kennedy had been shot, Vice President Hubert Humphrey dispatched a plane from Boston, sending a world-renowned brain surgeon to help save his life. When Lyndon Johnson heard about this, he angrily canceled the flight, telling Humphrey that he did not have the power to do such things. For the next day, as Kennedy lay in the hospital, Johnson paced around the Oval Office, repeatedly asking the Secret Service if Kennedy was, quote, dead yet. Anyways, that's just one of the many ways that this story manifests in ways that I can't always give the attention they really deserve. If you thought that this was an interesting topic and you'd like to learn about it in greater detail, then I'd highly recommend you read the book A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy by Lisa Peace, which is, in my own opinion and that of many others, the definitive single source on the Robert Kennedy assassination. It was a big source for this episode and really goes to impressive investigative lengths to tease out some of the questions that I was maybe only able to hint at, as well as plenty of really substantial evidence and testimony that I was not able to include in this episode at all. If this is at all a topic that you'd like to learn more about, then I'd highly recommend that you check it out. If you've made it all the way to this point, then thanks for sticking it out. You're a real trooper. If you liked this episode or considered this topic interesting, then I'd really appreciate it if you subscribed or shared the show with a friend. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.